everyone. It's, it's amazing to be here with all of you. Um, as was just shared, my name is Jamie Sears. I lead the community impact and corporate responsibility work for UBS in the Americas. And our team's mission is to advance inclusive growth. And we do that by deploying UBS's philanthropic capital um, into the focus areas of education and skills and by unleashing the power of employee volunteering and giving. And we focus on communities that have historically and still today are underinvested in but have abundant talent. And it's through this work that I've gotten to know Tulane Montgomery and her work at New Profit. So Tulane, thank you so much for making the journey here and for joining us today. I'm particularly excited about the session, and I might be biased, but I think it's a, a highlight and a crown jewel of the programming that the team has put together. Um, before we get started discussing proximate leadership, advancing equity, and so many other important topics, I want to just start, um, for those who are not familiar with Tulane Montgomery and her work, just sharing a little bit about you. So just wanted to start with if there were words that I'd use to describe Tulane, um, I would say that you're an educator, you're a writer, an entrepreneur, leader, and truth teller. <laughs> and your expertise spans globally in the launch of social, social enterprises and supporting social entrepreneurial efforts here in the United States, in the Caribbean, East Africa, South Africa, and Indonesia. You are the co-CEO of New Profit, and I will ask you in a moment to share a bit more about what that looks like. And you've been the lead architect um, for New Profit's inclusive impact strategy and the Proximate Capital Fund, which seeks to bridge the resource gap faced by black, Latinx, indigenous, rural, and other underinvested in social entrepreneurs. And your work's been featured in many places, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, The Root, Worth Media, and more. And outside of a new profit, you are a trusted advisor to nonprofit organizations and socially responsible companies, and serve on a number of organization boards, including the chair of Girl Trek, which I think you're gonna bring up today, the largest public health nonprofit for African American women and girls in the nation. And lastly, and I didn't know this about you, you are an experienced cellist, <laughs> and, and you've written and produced five original plays, um, so that's incredible. I don't know if there's anything more for you to do <laughs> in a lifetime, um, but we couldn't be more thrilled to have you here, and I've just personally learned a lot from you, and um, thrilled to be a partner of New Profits, and we'll talk about that as well. Um, so I'd love if we could just start out by hearing from you um, tell us a little bit about New Profit and, and what you all focus on there. Sure. So 
So thank you. First of all, it's really wonderful to be here. Jamie, thank you for extending the invitation. Um, it is true that you and I are partnering on some really exciting things that I uh, trust we'll be able to share with this group. I uh, really appreciate you all making the time. And I do feel like this conversation that we're about to have now connects really just beautifully to the conversation you all were just part of around family foundations, legacy, and multi-generational social impact. So we're going to get into it. I will acknowledge I am on the tail end of a cold. I'm not contagious, I promise. Um, so I may on occasion have to just take a pause and just bear with me for that. So first, let me just answer your question about New Profit. Um, New Profit, N-E-W Profit, which is an interesting name, right? Um, it is a venture philanthropy, which what that means is that we raise capital and identify promising social impact leaders. We work primarily with nonprofit organizations, but not exclusively. One of the things that we're noticing, Jamie, is that as we work with leaders who are having breakthrough impact in communities and in systems, that increasingly these leaders are looking at hybrid structures. Right? They're not sort of going for the sort of traditional, I'm either a 501c3 nonprofit or I am a social enterprise. They're creating these really fascinating hybrid structures, which I think has really exciting implications for the work we all do in philanthropy, impact investing, and social impact directed funding. New Profit, I'll say quickly, we've been in existence for about 24 years. Next year marks our 25th anniversary. Um, I have been a member of the New Profit team for just about a decade. I think you and I share similar yeah. kind of work anniversaries, mm -hmm. Jamie. Um, I've been co-CEO of New Profit for two years. Um, and you know, we'll talk in a minute about co-CEO, what does that mean, and why in the world did you do such a thing? <laughs> what I'll share with you quickly about New Profit is that we have supported over 150 social impact leaders since our beginning. Uh, to give you an example of some of the leaders that we've supported, we were early investors and board members for organizations you likely know well, like Teach for America, Year Up, Citizen Schools, Jumpstart, and organizations like that. And we have always prided ourselves on being a fund that was designed by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. So as Jamie mentioned, you know, a lot of my life has been in the social impact space as a social, social entrepreneur myself. And when myself and my co-CEO, Vanessa Kirsch, when we sort of dreamed up the idea of New Profit many years ago, we almost wanted to create like the anti-foundation. I think our, our temperament has smoothed out a bit in more recent years, but when we started dreaming this idea up 26, 27 years ago now, we were so exhausted with how many barriers existed when you had a solution to a social or community challenge. Like think about it, right? If, if, if you have a consumer facing product, a technological innovation, it is incredibly hard to launch and scale an enterprise around that. Let's make no mistake. Mm -hmm. But when you have a, but there, but, but there is a capital market that you can tap into. There are talent pipelines that you can tap into. There's a policy landscape that is designed to enable the growth and scale of promising consumer products or breakthrough technological innovations. But when you talk about social impact, capital market is broken at best. Talent pipelines are disaggregated. And the policy landscape is, is that's a whole nother set of workshops that we can maybe dig into. So at New Profit, we're really excited to not only raise capital and give unrestricted capital to these really breakthrough social entrepreneurs, we're excited to do our work to really shift the sector and to build pipelines, capital markets, policy contexts that enable people who have solutions to the things that really pain us in our society to enable them to grow and do what they know needs to be done. Um, just the last thing I'll say is we have um, invested 
just shy of $500 million to date in these social impact leaders. The Proximate Capital Fund that Jamie mentioned is a $100 million fund focusing on investing in black, Latinx, and indigenous leaders in particular. I'll tell you a little bit about why we chose those populations as a starting point. It's based on research, but we'll get into all that. So that's what I would do profit. Thank you, Julene. And can maybe we share a little bit about your upcoming gathering? Um, this, is, this is part of the partnership with, with uh, UBS, so Absolutely. would you like to share a little bit about The Well? I'm so excited yeah. to share about The Well. Yeah. So New Profit has, for the past 15 years, we've hosted an annual event that historically we called the Gathering of Leaders. And you know, think about like a motley crew of human beings who've dedicated some portion of their lives to social impact. Well, you know, we noticed, as I'm sure all of you have, that it's been a tough run for us human beings the past few years, right? No matter who you are, no matter what your circumstance, this has been a rough season. And so we said, okay, we're going to do this gathering, but we need to level it up. And we need to create a space for sense-making, connection, and evolved design around social impact. And so that event is the well. So November 14th through 16th in Washington, D.C., the week after midterm elections in the nation's capital, yes, we are nothing if not audacious. We are creating a space called The Well, purposefully, because The Well is a place where philanthropists, business leaders, social entrepreneurs, and organizers are gonna to come together. It'll be about a 450-person event in D.C., focusing on everything I said, sense-making. How do we make sense of this moment? How can we actually create relationships across identity that enable us to build a multiracial, intergenerational, cross-sector coalition that can really strengthen American democracy, regardless of partisan affiliation, and enable us to create us a nation that can kind of catch up to what has been true around demographic change. I was talking with your colleague, actually, a few minutes ago at the table back there, and we were saying, you know, listen, the, the macro trend folks have been predicting the shifting demographics in the U.S. for many, many years. However, we would argue at New Profit, there's been insufficient effort to actually prepare this country to really leverage the power and gifts that come from being in a multiracial society with diversity in our identities, diversity in our economic stories, diversity in our political ideologies. So the well, again, November 14th through 16th in D.C., is a place where philanthropists can connect with these incredible social entrepreneurs. And, and man, I'm gonna to talk to you about a few of them. We are so excited and inspired by the quality of innovation and impact that we're seeing in proximate leaders. It's a chance for folks who wanna be part of leading edge social impact and want to build relationships across identity to come together. The last thing I'll say is the reason we care so much about a multiracial, intergenerational, cross-sector coalition, we call it Mike for short because that's a lot of words. So the reason we care so much about a Mike is I am a student of history and a futurist, and I bet a lot of folks here in this room that you also carry that duality, where you study history and dream of a, a new and evolved future. Well, history has shown us that if you want to transform systems, if you want to end apartheid, if you want to advance independence across the continent of Africa, if you want to end Jim Crow legislation here in the United States, if you want to do something that changes the game and seems impossible, the only way to truly do that is by engaging a multiracial, intergenerational, cross-sector coalition. There's no one community or population or demographic that can do systems change in isolation of a coalition like that. And we, our coalition muscle in the U.S. has atrophied, one could argue, in the past few years. And so we're excited at the well to strengthen that musculature in this country for the sake of all of us. Thank you, and we're really excited to be a part of that. Yes. I've been really impressed by how serious 
you have been and New Profit's been to engage in a really authentic way emerging leaders. And so part of what we'll do together is um, really support 40 emerging leaders. They're primarily young, I say young relative to me, <laughs> young, young people of color in their 20s mm -hmm. who are emerging social entrepreneurs and to support them on their journeys and sort of having a first experience being, you know, kind of at a gathering like this and um, showing them how much we need their voice in building what, what you've just talked about. So that should be really We're really grateful. I just have to say, like, to UBS for this partnership because it enables us to bring in, we talk about intergenerational. And, you know, one of the biggest missteps that can happen in our space is treating intergenerational like a sort of tokenism play. You get maybe, you know, a handful of young people in a room and say, we've done it. We've done the intergenerational thing. And what this partnership with UBS has enabled is that we can bring a critical mass, a cohort of 40 young people who will be able to be in community with one another to create a sense of safety and confidence. And we're going to be able to integrate them into the entire experience so that the whole experience at the well is informed by the insights and perspectives of young people versus creating this almost unbearable pressure on a handful of young people in a tokenized way. So we're really mm -hmm. grateful for this partnership. I just want to say we were um, on a call recently, and um, I understand, you know, there was a first session with the cohort, and I, there was something that was said, and it really, really filled me up. It was this advice that was given: um, you don't have to prove anything, just be there to share your gifts. And I was like, wow, I, I needed to hear that. Um, but I, I'm really excited to um, engage with them and have some colleagues there as well. So, um, you know, I, I want to dive in a bit to proximate leadership. We've, you know, we've said it a few times. Certainly the cohort that we're bringing together, we would consider to be proximate leaders as well. So would love if you could share with us a little bit about what proximate leadership means to you and to New Profit. Absolutely. So, you know, proximate leadership, you know, one of the things about social impact work, we all know this, we love jargon, right? So one of the things I really wanted to do was ensure just level set by defining what we at New Profit mean when we talk about proximity. We all know what the word means, right? But what does it mean in a social impact context? And in terms of the origin story of why we use this word, Brian Stevenson, put your hand up if you've ever heard of or been in, you know, Brian Stevenson. Just I want to see quickly, just get a sense. Okay, so Brian Stevenson, an incredible, I would say, civil rights advocate and attorney who um, has had a film made about him in his lifetime with Michael B. Jordan playing him at his prime as an actor, which gives you some sense of like, you know, popular culture indicators of just the power of Brian Stevenson's story. His TED Talk is one of the most, you know, uh, viewed TED Talks and all of the TED Talks ever made. And he is brilliant. So if you haven't checked out the book Just Mercy or the film Just Mercy, if you've never heard of Brian Stevenson, probably one of the best gifts that we can give you is to introduce you to him. Anyway, Brian Stevenson talks about the criminal justice system. And as I believe folks in this room know, you know, the United States has the sort of unfortunate and even tragic sort of record of being the global leader in incarceration. And we also have the, the track record of being the most sort of overtly um, race biased in who gets incarcerated for how long and under what conditions. So Brian Stevenson has been a powerful global advocate to change that truth in terms of, uh, you know, tragic leadership on the part of this country. He says the way that it's possible for a country that has democratic ideals 
like the US to have such a biased and broken criminal justice system is because of the absence of proximity. This idea that there are some people whose fates have no connection to our own. And the othering of entire communities or entire community group and identity groups is what enables in the US a criminal justice system that is so broken and imbalanced. And so when Brian Stevenson talks about anything, you listen, you'll find that if you haven't, if you check out that TED Talk, you'll see it. But when he talked about proximity as the solution and as a key engine for social impact and justice, it really resonated with us. And so I think I have a couple slides here to just you know, help us understand this, how we mean this term. Okay, so we talk about proximity as our ability to be in meaningful, authentic relationship with people who, whose identity and lived experience is different from our own. Now, one of the things we'll talk about is just the level of fragmentation that exists right now in the US. Um, and so one of the things that fragmentation enables is it enables the othering of people and the sort of writing off of people. You see it play out on the criminal justice system. I could argue that you see it play out in certain dimensions of philanthropy. So, you know, here's the thing. We're all physiologically wired to thrive through connection. You know, there's a whole set of things that happen in our brains and in our bodies, our hormones and all of this, that when we're in connection with another human, it enables creativity. It enables, you know, it gets us out of fight flight. We're more creative, we're smarter, we have more energy. Our immune system gets stronger. There's a whole host of ways that we as human beings are better at being human when we're in proximity with one another. However, a whole set of factors that are at play in our country have meant that we're rarely in proximity with people who look and live differently than we do. And I have some information I'll share about that in a moment. So for us, we at New Profit are committed to investing in the power of proximity by investing in proximate leadership. And as you see on the screen, proximate leader is someone who has meaningful relationship with groups whose identity has been uh, underestimated, overlooked, or perhaps characterized as dangerous or somehow less capable. And I think there's a couple more things I want to say about this. Um, being a proximate leader, it's not code for being a person of color. What happens in this country, we're so kind of new to having shared dialogue about equity, particularly racial equity, that when we hear terms, we presume it means, oh, that's about something other than me. And I can say in this room, where all of you are social impact leaders and philanthropists, and many of you happen to be white race identity based on what I can see, that proximity doesn't, it includes you, right? Proximity is not simply about being exposed to a particular group or issue. Proximity is not simply about being a member of that group, right? You can be uh, a white race identity proximate leader working in a community of color, and I'll give you some examples of what that looks like. Proximity and proximate leadership for New Profit is about having, being guided by the insights, assets, and aspirations of the community and constituency that you want to support, invest in, and serve. And there's ways to do that that go far beyond sort of the barriers and dimensions of racial identity, economic background, geographic you know, home base. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about that. What we've seen is that proximity enables powerful impact, proximity enables sustainability, proximity enables communities and constituents to be deeply enrolled in the solution and model which has tremendous benefits for philanthropists and impact investors, investors who want to be sure that your grant making and your, your support actually go as far as possible. Investing in proximate leaders helps to enable that assurance, but it also enables results, and we'll talk about some examples of why. Um, I do want to say that for us at New Profit, proximity is a million miles away from charity. 
Proximity does not relate to charity. Proximity is about impact, results, and genius. What we found and seen in our portfolio is that genius resides in the very same communities and constituency groups that we as philanthropists seek to support. And so it's about not leaving impact and genius on the table by overlooking the insights of proximate leaders. So I'll pause there, and then we'll talk about some examples, because I know the examples are helpful when we're talking about these kinds of concepts. Could you actually talk for a minute about the etymology of philanthropy? Oh yeah, absolutely. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so the Greek origins of the word philanthropy, um, it's, a, it, it, it's to love humankind. So the notion being that we as humans would, with our capital and our time and our insights, that we would work to care for people who are not ourselves or our immediate family. And when you think about love of humankind, it's really hard to love folks you don't know anything about, right? <laughs> it's really challenging to do that. And so we find that building authentic relationship with and being guided by the insights of those communities, it's really important. Um, back in 2018, uh, New Profit, with the support of the Gates Foundation, did some research on the funding cycles in philanthropy. We focused on US philanthropy. And what we found at the time was that back in 2018, so this is before the pandemic, this is before the murder of George Floyd and the racial reckoning that happened globally. In 2018, it was true that of the 30% of folks in the US at the time who identified as black and Latinx, that there were about 10 nonprofit organizations that were led by people who had those identities or claimed those identities. But at the time, only 4% of US philanthropy went to organizations led by black or Latinx leaders who were also proximate in their practice. 4% in 2018, right? So there was something about the way that philanthropy was operating that created a gap and a distance between capital, access to capital, and proximity to community and issues. Um, so inclusive impact and our proximate work all came from that research where we said, wait a minute, we need to change that percentage. The other thing I want you to know is that it wasn't only the case that 4% of philanthropy went to black and brown-led institutions. When you looked at the features of that 4%, higher restrictions, much tighter restrictions, which is a reflection of a limited amount of trust, right? Um, you saw more touch points required to secure those dollars. Again, mm -hmm. another indicator of limited trust across identity. You also saw no risk capital. So we all know, as folks who've been business leaders and entrepreneurs in this room, that risk capital is essential to enable a successful, thriving, growing, scalable enterprise. But when we looked at US philanthropy, there was literally less than 1% of philanthropy that enabled risk-taking and R&D for organizations led by black and brown people. Again, another indicator of a lack of trust. Proximity is a solution to all of that. Yeah. yeah. And I think to um, contextualize a bit proximate leaders, it would be great if you could share some examples with us. I think it really. Um, brings it to life and, and highlights some people in the movement who are doing it really well. Absolutely, absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that proximity is about what the word truly means. It's about people who are close enough to and credible enough with communities to be guided by the insights of those communities. Um, for us, proximate leader is not like a, sta a stagnant title. You don't become a proximate leader and then you're done. Proximity is a practice 
You're constantly seeking insights and letting those insights inform the model, your hiring, your grant making, et cetera. So I want to highlight a few of these proximate leaders. And just bear with me as I just make sure that I give you all the good information. So David Flink is the gentleman who was a proximate leader. He runs an organization called Eye to Eye. I want you to notice that David Flink is white race identity. So again, proximity and proximate leaders are not sort of code or proxy for just certain identity groups. And I think that's important to say as we're working towards equity in this space. We're just new to it as a, as a country, and so we kind of default towards overly simplified definitions. So Eye to Eye is an organization that works with young people with diverse neurological capabilities and differentiated learning needs. Now David himself grew up with you know, a, a diagnosis of being learning disabled, right? He has dyslexia and a couple of other neurological realities that mean the way he learns is outside of what has been mislabeled the norm. We've learned the norm is actually not the norm, but he has a set of specialized learning support needs. Now David has been able to move through education. He was able to complete Ivy League education at the undergraduate level. He's a published author, New York Times bestselling author, and so he has certainly been able to navigate a set of realities and come through victorious. But his proximity to the specific needs of young people who are learning with diagnosed learning disabilities enables him to build an organization like Eye to Eye that has breakthrough impact and results where he's able to support thousands of young people, partner with school districts to inform their district-wide practice, build talent pipelines that enable him to hire young people who perhaps have struggled with academic performance because he knows what are the true indicators of readiness and success and professional capability for young people who may not have been able to thrive in some of the more, quote, mainstream test-taking test structures. So in that case, David Flink's proximity as a person who had diagnosed learning disabilities enabled him to build a model that has had a reach and impact that was not matched previously because of that proximity. Another example that you see here is uh, Morgan Dixon and Vanessa Garrison. They're the co-founders of Girl Trek. Full disclosure, uh, I chair the board of Girl Trek, so I'm pretty passionate about Girl Trek, and if you ask me, I'll talk to you about Girl Trek all day. But what I want to say is, when you think about the work that's been done in the United States around health, particularly black women's health, much of the efforts prior to, prior to Girl Trek were focused on behavior, presuming that the core driver of poor health outcomes for black women was their own ignorance. So simply, make better choices with food. Don't be lazy, move around, right? And if we simply teach you, black women, how to make smarter decisions, you'll be healthier. Well-intended, well-intended. None of it was malicious. However, even as I say it, I'm looking at your faces, you can see the limitations, right? Now, Morgan and Vanessa, as two incredible social entrepreneurs who happen to be black women, they went through their own journey around health. They're, they're, they're two of the most fit and athletic women, humans, really, that you'll probably ever meet. But what they recognized is that there was power in walking with consistency in community. And they created a model that really recognizes the inherent brilliance and resilience and, and beauty and genius of black women. It wasn't an organization saying, we know that you've made bad decisions. Let's help you be smarter. It was an organization saying, we actually recognize that there's a whole set of systemic factors that play out that make it harder for you to get access to healthcare, that make doctors question you when you say you're in physical pain that make it harder to get access to healthy foods because many of you are living in what we call food deserts. They had an understanding of the multiple systemic factors that 
yielded mm -hmm. differentiated and poor health outcomes for a critical mass of black women. And they built a model that now has over 1.3 million members in the US alone, where black women are walking in community and they are getting healthy. They are more engaged in their civic context. They are running for office. They are being successful entrepreneurs. They're helping other women get healthy. And literally, the impact, when they said they were gonna get a million black women walking 10 years ago when they started, um, folks said, That's, you're not gonna be able to do that. that. That doesn't make any sense. They're now reaching a significant percentage of the black women in this country, population level impact, because of their proximate, proximate practice. And again, it's not simply because they happen to be black women working with black women. It's because their practice is guided by the insights, aspirations, and interests of the women they serve. So it's proximate practice, not simply identity-based leadership. And the final one I'll offer is Vichy and Seth, who are doing incredible work in the rural context, they run the Rural Opportunity Initiative. Now, they're both white race identity leaders who actually did not grow up in a rural context. And I wanted to highlight them because I think one of the challenges of a lot of the equity-focused social impact work is that it presumes that you have to have a certain story or identity in order to have authentic impact or value. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Anyone can practice proximate leadership. Anybody, no matter what their story, their identity, their economic background, any of us can. It's simply about listening to and respecting the insights of constituents. Seth and Vici, they had a whole series of processes where they engaged over 500 community members in rural environments to hear about their insights, to hear about where philanthropy had actually made missteps and caused harm unintentionally, to build their program models. And when you work with them, they're in New Profits portfolio, all of these organizations are. They're constantly seeking insight and feedback from their rural constituents who they support, partner with, and serve. And I think that these three examples are important because they show that proximity is available to all of us. And proximity is directly connected to impact. It's not about charity. It's not even something to do because it's the right thing to do, even though it may be that, depending on your perspective. If you care about impact, if you care about sustainability, if you care about efficiency of your philanthropic dollars, investing in proximate leaders is a way to enable and ensure all of those things. Thank you, those are incredible examples. Um, along the same line, um, a continuation of our session on activating and elevating yeah. proximate leadership and advancing equity, yeah. can we also talk about a few other concepts and this has already been sort of brought into this um, forum, which is, was awesome to hear, um, about accelerating trust. Yes, absolutely. So I, I do think this is, this is definitely coming up uh, a lot. And that's because I think we're all sort of wrestling with this. It's like, listen, we, we um, have a series of institutions and systems that were not necessarily designed to be multiracial, but they are. And so now we're trying to figure out how to catch our relationships our structures and our mental models up to the reality of this country, right? And so I do wanna talk a little bit about accelerating trust. Um, when I was, there we go. Um, I, I was not too long ago uh, in uh, one of our New Profits uh, investor partners' homes in New, in New York City, so you know, sorry y'all, but in New York City. And um, this investor was talking with me and with other investors and business leaders about their philanthropy. And this was, um, this was actually a little while ago, so it was early in the days of racial reckoning in the US. And I presented the question to the group, um, because we, we actually at New Profit, we actually have very deep partnerships with investors and donors who work with us. 
And I said, help me understand how folks who say they have a deep commitment to inclusion and equity, why is it that when you start to have conversations about this work, one of the first questions you get is, well, are you going to maintain the same level of quality? Are you going to maintain the same level of rigor? There was a time, it's maybe a less popular question now, but there was a time just a couple years ago where when some of the early movements around social impact and inclusion were happening, that there were sort of concerns around, well, we like that, sounds great, mm -hmm. but we want to make sure that we still sustain impact and quality and rigor. And I, I didn't understand why, for people who I knew were values aligned, why inclusion and equity brought up questions around quality and impact. I just didn't get it. So I said, help me. And I think that's one of the things about proximity that's great. When you have a question about something you don't understand, you could ask people directly and learn from each other. There's an exchange and a reciprocity. So what the investors talked to me about is say, they said, listen, whether you're making an investment in a traditional business sense or you're making a choice about a grant in a philanthropic sense, that trust is really at the heart of it. That there's a way that you are demonstrating through where your capital goes, a certain level of trust in the leader, the organization, and the idea. And so one of the things that is really important is that we need to find ways to accelerate trust. So after that conversation, my wheels started turning, and I was like, okay, I've got to understand this accelerating trust. Part of our work at New Profit is to accelerate trust. Now, that's always been challenging. I think it's harder now than it ever was in the U US, for sure. But there's really three ways that we humans, in the Western world anyway, tend to accelerate trust, right? One is familiarity. You look like me, or you live like me. Doesn't always have to be you look like me, but you live like me is a close second. You know, you, you went to the schools I went to, your children do the same things I do, your recreation looks like mine, you're familiar to me. Now, we would argue that familiarity as a way to build trust is kind of what's gotten us here as a country, right? And it's limited by definition. Because we do live very different lives in the USA. We live very different lives, and that's actually a good thing if we can figure out how to leverage it and embrace it. So familiarity is one way. At New Profit, we want to actually get us beyond the limitations of familiarity as the approach to trust building. Well, the second is immersion. And this is one that you may have been part of in your, in your philanthropic journey. You know, I uh, had an experience where I'm, I'm on, on the board of an organization in Kenya that's focusing on creating economic and employment opportunities for young people who are living on the street, right? And so one of the things that I did is I spent you know, quite a lot of time living in Kenya, building relationships with the young people, learning the context. That's an immersion experience. I went from knowing very little about the context and experience to being immersed in the day-to-day, -day, building deep relationship, having a visceral reference that I could draw on when it was time to make decisions about structure and funding. But immersion is limited too, right? Because time and capital. You know, we don't always have the time, and very few of us, frankly, have the capital to invest in immersion experiences to build trust. So what's left? And at New Profit, when we talk about proximity, we get so excited about it because we think that adjacent effort is really where we, as folks who care about impact, opportunity, and systems, where we need to put our time. When we're working together, when we have a shared experience, goal, or destination, Again, we're physiologically wired as humans to if we're working towards the same thing, like you and I are working on building the well together. That shared adjacent effort has enabled us to build relationship, you know, at I think maybe a much faster clip than if we were just in a couple of meetings together, you know, talking about ideas without the experience of doing something together. So at New Profit, we believe deeply in adjacent effort, 
And we believe that it is essential for those of us in the funding world to invest not only in direct grants and to do that, and unrestricted funding, by the way, is our friend, but to also create opportunities for adjacent efforts so that we can build trust, remove some of the barriers that exist when leaders and organizations that may not be familiar to us have a breakthrough idea. The amount of time that certainly I spend as an entrepreneur and that many social impact leaders spend building trust, case making, introducing and reintroducing their credibility, it's impact and time left on the table. So if we can accelerate trust so that we can move and be more nimble, you know, as a coalition of philanthropists, we believe that adjacent effort is the way. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the, what that looks like. But it's a pretty simple framework, but we believe it's important mm -hmm. that our work is not only to fund, but it's to have enough adjacent effort experiences that we can build trust and recognition of excellence that may be unfamiliar to us mm -hmm. as funders. Well, I know that um, trust-based philanthropy came up, as we said, in, uh, by our, the last incredible speaker. Um, wanted to see if we could get a preview, a little bit about the mega trends that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the timing of this. I think um, you shared with us um, that this will be shared with public as a whole, so they, maybe this is a preview um, in the Stanford Social Innovation Review to come. But um, share with us, you know, in addition to trust-based philanthropy, what are some of the other sure. mega trends that we could learn from? Sure. I mean, you know, one is, you know, in trust-based philanthropy, it's interesting. You know, at New Profit, we talk about proximity versus trust-based philanthropy because here's the thing I want to say, that we at New Profit don't believe it's simply about folks who have capital putting the capital on the table and leaving. <laughs> we see some examples of that, and we see some real challenges to that, right? Because we believe proximity is about us adjacent, shoulder to shoulder, working to figure out the solution. So one of the trends that we're seeing is it's kind of like the, the, the edgier cousin of trust-based philanthropy, perhaps, but it's that you know, we're moving from just give the capital and leave models, which I think are inherently limited, because as humans, we all want to be part of something that we invest our time and resource in. And the idea that it's simply about capital alone, it's just not true. You know, at New Profit, we invest heavily in capacity building as well as capital, because what it takes to build an institution and advance a solution to the entrenched challenges in this country, we need all of us at the table. So one of the trends is proximate-focused funding. We're seeing that more and more impact investors and philanthropic leaders are recognizing, wait a minute, we actually need to focus on capacity building as much as we do capital. We need to focus on creating enough trust in terms of relationships that grantees and partners can tell us where we have good intentions but harmful impact, and we need to have the capacity to adjust our practice and our grant-making criteria so that we can consistently evolve. And I think philanthropy is no different from any other sector. We have to evolve. We have to have ways to consistently get input, assess our impact, and have rapid feedback loops. So I'm seeing more and more of those rapid feedback loops. I'm seeing more and more proximate partnerships. I'm seeing more and more situations where we're creating models where grantees and partners and constituents are part of decision making. I'll give a quick example from New Profit if it's helpful. Um, we have a portfolio around um, educational equity and economic recovery. Right, we're doing it in partnership with several other large national foundations and some individuals who are contributing. 
Uh, we have a whole body of work where we're engaging families and parents in the selection, right? So instead of saying we as funders are able to assess impact without hearing anything from constituents, which kind of doesn't make sense. Like think about if like we're talking about a business endeavor. You know, we would never say without hearing from either customers or our target customer base, we can assess readiness for something to go to market. We just wouldn't do it. But in the social impact space, we do it all the time. And it just doesn't actually make sense. So with this initiative, we have not just a parent advisory group who we say we're doing this, isn't it great? And they say yes, please, because they want funding. But we have people who have power who get to have a veto vote around selection. They can, they can stop the whole thing. Now you can imagine there's moments where that can feel scary. But what I found to be true is that in almost every case, if we just trust constituents enough, we'll find that our priorities and those of constituents and community members are deeply aligned. If we could just relax and trust folks enough to give them some authority, they'll, we'll see that what they actually care about and what we care about are essentially the same, right? So that's a trend is moving from sort of some of the more, I would say, surface trust-based philanthropy models that are more representative and maybe have a small number of people who get to show up, creating, giving real power, which for me rests in a few areas. Criteria for selection, so not, not implementing criteria that haven't been vetted and frankly changed by community members. Selection input, being able to have a say in how, who actually gets funding, and having some access of veto power. Now that's where it gets really tricky, but that is a place where you can see power show up in structure. And then also with spreading the word about opportunities. You know, we at New Profit are gonna invest in 81 leaders this year alone, which is growth for us. Um, we're not the biggest institution in the world. We punch above our weight class. But we've been able to identify some of the most breakthrough leaders imaginable because we ask constituents and community to help spread the word. Well, they're not gonna spread the word if they don't trust the viability and credibility of what we're doing, if they don't know and trust us. So building these proximate relationships enable you to get access to the leading entrepreneurs and the leading models much more quickly than you can without community. And it allows you to um, really have community buy-in so that when you move forward, it's not just you standing by yourself hoping it works out, it's you standing shoulder to shoulder with a network of folks who are invested. Even if you're providing the capital, also you're working in partnership. So I think just to your question, we're seeing more and more courage and audacity from funders and philanthropists when it comes to power sharing. We're also seeing more and more, and I'm really happy to see this, that philanthropists and funders are not sort of buying into this weird zero-sum story where it's about power being wrestled from the hands of those who have it. That's not what history shows us actually works when it comes to systems change. We actually do need to find a way to re-strengthen our coalition muscle in this country. And I think philanthropy has a really critical role to play in that. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.